Welcome back to the Ancient Health Podcast, where we educate you on real health solutions that will help transform the way you live, feel, and overcome disease naturally. I'm your host, Courtney Versage, along with Dr. Josh Axe and Dr. Chris Motley. We're so happy you've joined us. Let's dive into today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Health Institute Podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Chris Motley, and my co-host, Courtney, couldn't be here today because she had a little one, and so they're resting right now. I have a very special guest who knows most all things about the microbiome. He's knowledgeable. He is the founder of Microbiome Labs. He talks about how not only nutritional health, but how microbiome levels can affect your overall health. It's Karan Krishnan, and thank you so much, my friend, for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to start off. um, I know we've talked before, and I'm a huge fan. We use your products in our office. And everyone out there, uh, Dr. Axe, by the way, sends his best because Dr. Axe, he's always about how can we get people that have a huge role in nutrition or gut health to be part of the podcast. And I really wanted to make it to everybody out there that's listening that we wanted to be like a free reign. Um, I wanted us to talk about, you know, definitely about microbiome, about inflammation, because your explanation about inflammation, how the body is activated uh, according to the levels of the biome and what that means for people who have immune diseases. So I really wanted you just to take the floor, but I, I'll interject. Uh, I don't want to overspeak though, Tom, but let's talk about your steps, how you got into, uh, into microbiome when you created it yeah. and what was your passion behind it when you started? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, again, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a great platform to be able to share this kind of information. I think ultimately what we want to do is empower people with information, right? So they understand how their body works and, and then they can take action, right? And uh, the exciting thing about the time we live in is that what we're coming to realize is there's a lot more you can do to improve your health than we previously thought, right? We used to lean a lot on our doctors. We used to lean a lot on, on our healthcare people that we, we would go see once a year, right, for a checkup. Now we know that the choices we make every single day have an impact and that you know, speaks right to the the impact of our choices on the microbiome. And, and that's that's why our company exists, right? So I'm a research microbiologist with a big focus on understanding the microbiome and how the microbiome either relates to disease or to wellness, right? So the microbiome, what's really fascinating about it is it's such a prominent part of our existence, both physical and physiological and even philosophical in in many ways, right? Our existence. And yet it can either be friend or foe. And that's the part that I think we need to keep highlighting over and over again, is that the microbiome is an essential part of our existence, right? All of the genetic elements that it has, all of the metabolism that it creates, all of the interaction it has with the immune system. And we'll get into more details around each of those things. But at the end of the day, we would cease to exist without our microbiome. But our microbiome is either helping us and, you know, being one of the best things for our health, or it can be one of the most toxigenic things that we're exposed to on a day-to-day basis, right? And it really depends on where the microbes are and, and what microbes are predominant in your system. And so understanding that, we created this company called Microbiome Labs so that to be able to invest and pursue studies around the microbiome and more and more specifically, how do we modulate the microbiome to improve our health, right? What mm-hmm. tools can we develop? Of course, probiotics are easy one. That's a, that's a given tool to modulate the microbiome. 
but prebiotics, uh, postbiotics, enzymes, peptides, all kinds of things are possible to, to modulate the microbiome. And equally important to all of that is lifestyle choices, right? Mm -hmm. So a big part of what we do and what, well, what our promise to the market and the world is, is that we want to play a significant role in educating the world around the microbiome mm -hmm. so that there's lots of things you can do in all the, pr the products and all that we talk about. But then there's also lots of things you, you should be doing on your own that don't involve products, you know, fasting and changing your diet to a certain degree, you know, eliminating certain lifestyle behaviors and so on. So that's the mission is it's about making vibrant health accessible to all. Vibrant health more often than not is a uh, privilege of the privileged in the society, right? You, if you have money, if you have access if you have connections, you have access to good food, you have good access to good care, you have vibrant health, or you can have vibrant health. There are too many people, which is the vast majority of people that just don't have access to all that, right? So then the big question is, how can we give people access to vibrant health to simple understanding, simple measures, simple changes, affordable things, and even things that cost almost nothing? I love that you say that um, when you say affordable um, and creating a change internally, because uh, I know we talked about how if you're going to affect the internal and how much is expressed on the external. And one of the, the coolest things we talked about internally, you talk about the spore aspect of probiotics. I hope I'm not going off key, but man, one of the best things that you talked about was like, could you go through it and let everybody know about like, you're talking about like the spores of the earth. Like, I mean, the biome of the earth and, and give that explanation because I thought it was so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So when, when we think about, you know, the, the microbial ecology that surround us, and this is kind of how we hone in on developing of a, of a probiotic, right? We, we really took a step back. And number one, we wanted to keep it simple, but we wanted to keep it really relevant. So the idea was that, you know, what has nature actually provided us that functions as a probiotic, right? Do we want to go and find strains and and go, oh, the strain could be effective, but it doesn't really survive and it doesn't do this, doesn't do that. So let's add some engineering to it. Let's put a special capsule. Let's do this. Let's do that. There's a place for that. And, and we, we chose not to take that approach. We really wanted to look at nature first, right? We said that we've been evolving on this earth for millions of years. We've co-evolved with all of these microbes. There are microbes we know that engage with us naturally as probiotic bacteria, it's inevitable. We evolved in this environment with these microbes. So we honed in on the spores, these bacillus endospores. Um, and the reason we did that is because bacillus endospores are such unique organisms. They exist commensally in the GI tract, in the human GI tract, but then they're also pretty ubiquitous in the outside environment. And that's a very unique characteristic. 99.999% of the microbes that live commensally in your GI tract aren't found in any given amount in the outside environment, right? Because these two environments are so different. The GI tract, for the most part, is anaerobic, meaning there's no oxygen. You know, it's, there's no light. It's dark. That There's a constant flow of liquids and solids and all coming through. It's, it's got a low, relatively low pH uh, compared to the outside environment. You know, so it's got a very different mix of features compared to being outside, let's say, in the dirt or in water and rivers and streams, or sitting there on vegetation. Those are desiccated environments, they're dry. There's UV radiation, there's lots of oxygen, right? And there isn't this constant flow of nutrients and liquids and all that coming through. 
And so these two unique environments typically end up having completely different microbes, the outside environment and the inside in the gut. These bacillus endospores have bridged that gap, right? They exist equally on the outside world as they do on the inside of the GI tract. So that made them very interesting to us since we, we started saying, well, maybe they have some natural capability of surviving through the gastric system, which allows them to exist as normal commensal flora in your gut, the same way they could exist outside in the outside environment. And sure enough, their ability to form these endospores, put this armor-like plating coating around them, allows them to exist in very harsh environments outside where it's really dry and there's lots of UV radiation, which normally kills bacteria, and also very harsh conditions on the inside, like trying to go through the gastric system, making it through the stomach acid, the bile acids, and all that. So mm -hmm. that hardiness, that ability to cover itself in this armor-like protein coating allows this bacteria to have a duality in existence where it exists outside and exists inside. Now, that alone is not enough for it to be an effective probiotic, right? But it definitely makes it a very unique organism. Then you dig a little bit deeper into bacillus endospores, and then you start to understand that they are some of the most oldest living creatures on Earth, right? The mm -hmm. oldest bacillus endospore that has been found that was still alive was found in Southern California in the deep recesses of caves that have now not been explored. So scientists have been going into these deep uh, uncharted caves looking for new microbes to identify. And the reason they're looking for new microbes is because they're looking for new antibiotic molecules, right? Antibiotics in general are produced by microbes. They're produced by fungus from bacteria and so on. Bacteria and all use antibiotics to compete in their environment. And of course, we got our idea from antibiotics to begin with from a microbe from penicillin. Uh, and so they've been going in because of all this antibiotic resistance that's been created uh, through overuse of antibiotics. They've been going to these caves looking for ancient microbes that no one's ever found to see if they can find new antibiotic compounds. One of the explorations to these deep caves in Southern California, they found these salt crystals that were, that were dated back to 250 million years old, right? So these crystals are 250 million years old. They were able to melt out the crystals, and in them were these bacillus endospores. And these bacillus endospores were still alive. They could still plate them. What? 250 million years old, right? <laughs> Completely nuts when you think about it. That predates the dinosaurs. Those bacteria, the same type of bacillus that we're working with as probiotics, were here that long ago, and they got, they got suspended in this, in this low, uh, high... Uh, sodium environment, which is not a good environment for them. So they went into this protective state, this armor-like coating, metabolically inactive state, which is a spore state. They've mm -hmm. remained in that state for 250 million years old. And then we could play them out and still grow them today, right? The second oldest was actually in, in South America. They found a, um, a whole honeybee, which is an ancient fossilized honeybee, right? So mm -hmm. the entire bee was fossilized in amber, kind of like in Jurassic Park, you know, that picture of the whole mosquito, right? Yeah. In the amber. So this was a, a honeybee that was, and then they drilled into to look at the uh, GI contents to understand what the bee was pollinating, eating, what the environment looked like at the time. They also pulled out microbes from the bee's gut and they were able to still plate it. And these were bacillus endospores that were 50 million years old, fossilized and still alive. 
right? So it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Then you start to look at theories like the theory, the panspermia theory, which looks at, you know, where did the origins of cellular function come from? Like, did they mysteriously uh, show up on Earth? Was it through the primordial soup? Or was Earth seeded with some of the building blocks of life, like nucleic acids and uh, proteins, amino acids, and so on, right? Mm-hmm. And there's evidence that on, that on meteorites that crash into the Earth, that there are nucleic acids, there are amino acids on these rocks that are traveling through space. Mm-hmm. So the, the thinking is that during that early stage of Earth's development, when it was constantly bombarded by, mm-hmm. by all of these meteorites, it was being seeded with all of the cellular building blocks, right? And then under the right conditions, these coalesce into cells. So they were looking at microbes today that could have survived interstellar journey to become the first living things, official living things on Earth. So they took bacillus endospores and they found that it could survive in interstellar space for seven years in the cold vacuum of space. These, these microbes can survive for over seven years, and they, uh, there's a good chance that the bacillus endospores that we're working with as probiotics that live commensally in your gut were the origins of cellular life on Earth, right? Mm-hmm. That they came actually from Mars and other planets and, uh, and maybe other planetary systems uh, in different parts of the universe and were bombarded and seeded Earth with cellular structures and it's it's absolutely mind blow, uh, blowing to think about that, right? And and here they are sitting there still after billions of years of existence. They're still sitting there, and when we put the right ones in the GI tract, the things they know how to do in our gut are things that we couldn't engineer a bacteria to do, right? The quorum sensing that they do, so they can go in, they can read the microbial environment, they can find pathogenic and opportunistic organisms, they'll sit next to them and compete against them to bring them down. At the same time, they produce compounds to rebuild our own microbial commensals, right? And so they shift the entire gut microbiome within days of being in the gut, right? It's, it's mind-blowing when you think about it. Whenever you have that, that competition, Karam, like when you're talking about how they outcompete, yeah, and with bacillus bacteria in particular, and you talked about the quorum, and I maybe maybe yeah. we can go down this route. I just want to talk. Many people out there talk about uh, biofilms. They talk yeah. about plaquing on the internal walls. Does that also have like you know communication like with bad microbes? But you also have good biofilm too. Is that is that something like in in the technology out there? They're learning more about about biofilms. Absolutely. So bi- so biofilms in general will, will get a bad rep right? Because uh, we know that pathogens produce biofilms and that's one of the ways that they protect themselves. But also it's very important to note that 90 plus percent of all your good commensals also live within biofilms, right? Mm -hmm. Biofilms are just an important aspect of bacterial community structures because what it allows microbes to do is all live under a certain tent where they share different functionalities, right? They metabolize things and produce byproducts for other bacteria. Some bacteria produce protective chemistry to to ward off invading species. Others produce metabolically active chemistries that help grow the colony at that stage. And then the biofilms themselves can act as a lattice of communication between microbes that are distant from one another. We know that microbes, 
that are completely distant from one another. If you, if you look at it from a microbial perspective, it's it's a huge distance. Like it'd be like for me talking to somebody that's a thousand miles away without a phone, right? Like they communicate through a lattice, uh, similar to the way I think about it is like um, the movie Avatar, right? Uh, where the, the world is connected by this lattice that lives on the ground. Um, and you can con- communicate through that network. So microbes can communicate with each other through this biofilm, right? And, uh, and, the, and the really well, uh, the really strong biofilm producing probiotic bacteria can be actually very powerful. So one of our probiotic bacteria that we work with, the Bacillus subtilis A258, one of the reasons why it's so powerful in terms of protecting the commensal organisms competing against the pathogenic is because it's a great biofilm producer. So what it does, and and being able to produce a biofilm also means that it knows how to break down a biofilm, Ah. right? So what it does is it comes in and when it senses like a biofilm that's made by, let's say, streptococcus or staphylococcus or any of these other potential uh, pathogens, it produces an enzyme coil for amylase that will break down those microbes biofilm expose those microbes to our immune system, and then also expose those microbes to the antimicrobials that the bacillus produces. Once it kills off those microbes, it then establishes its own biofilm and invites in a bunch of commensal bacteria to live under this new genre. The spores are, you know, I'll tell, uh, we, we published a really cool study with Cleveland Clinic. Cleveland Clinic, of course, being one of the big integrated medicine research centers in the world, uh, we did a C. diff study with them, Clostridium difficile, right? And we know, everyone knows who's heard of that, that Clostridium difficile is a really robust pathogen that's hard to deal with. You know, you use antibiotics, but the reversion rate, it keeps coming back and it's it's an awful disease. What we saw when we added a megaspore into a Clostridium colonized GI tract uh, was that the, the spores go in, they identify the Clostridia, And then what they do is they surround the clostridia like circling wagons around them, right? And the reason they do that is because their technique of dealing with clostridia is different than their technique of dealing with a different pathogen. Uh, Other pathogens that are not as robust as clostridia, they will just produce antimicrobials and they kill off the pathogen, right? Or just uh, compete for space and bump off the pathogen. With the clostridia, which is a more robust pathogen, they have to take a different technique they actually produce chelating agents that chelate iron and other metals away from the clostridia, starving it to death. Because clostridia need iron for its metabolic processes. That's one of the reasons why when you get C. diff infection, one of the the effects is bleeding stool, right? Because Mm. the clostridia is eating away at your mucus layer. It's trying to get to the blood flow because it needs the iron. Right. And so what the spores do, they go in and they go, I know what this is. They surround it. They starve it to death by chelating iron away from it. Once it's starved to death, it kicks it out and takes over its space. Right. I, I mean, it's, you cannot engineer a microbe to do that. That's nature at its finest. Right. It's beautiful. That's, I mean, it's amazing the innate intelligence that you have like within your body and it's like in the uh-huh. gut too. I mean, like to chelate iron away, does that, I mean, on a side note, that could explain, you know, like you said, low iron levels in some individuals oh. that people don't have an explanation why they have anemia type symptoms. Because many times in the office, people come to me and we'll find like some C. diff or, you know, after the fact, I'm saying they'll have anemia and I'm just trying to find out what they have going on, like in a map test in their gut. Oh. So they, they have this innate intelligence and the knowledge with this quorum going on. 
Can you touch a bit about when, um, like the immune modulation, you know, like when you were talking about how it can help with inflammatory signals and what it can do to moderate or balance immune, immune, high immune or inflammation signals in the body? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I, and I think for people to really understand that, they have to understand that the, the microbiome and the immune system are essentially the same system, right? They're just two parts of the same system. They work very much hand in hand. Uh, and the immune system would actually cease to function and cease to exist in many ways without the microbiome, right? So it's, it's, it's really fascinating when you think about it. Because when you put yourself in the shoes of an immune cell, and you start to understand the difficulty that the immune cell faces in, in its day-to-day job, right? Then you start to understand how having microbial partners is the only way that an immune cell can actually function. So imagine you're, you're an immune cell, right? And your job is to protect the host. Let's say you're an innate immune cell, a macrophage or dendritic cell, or even a T cell floating around, and you're supposed to protect the host. 99% of the time, you're trying to protect the host from invading organisms, right? That are that may make the host sick, whether it's a virus, a bacteria, a protozoa, amoeba, whatever it may be, a fungus, but you're looking for organisms. And the whole time you're looking for organisms, the space in which you survey, that entire space is already covered with organisms, right? Mm-hmm. Your job is to look for bacteria, viruses, and all that, the whole time being covered in bacteria and viruses and all that, right? Yeah. So like, how does that, how does the immune cell do that? So the analogy I give people to, to help them understand is imagine you're in a stadium uh, and it's a pretty large stadium and there are 200,000 people in the stadium, right? And out of those 200,000 people, one person has Ill, Ill intent on the rest of the crowd. They might have a weapon, they might have something that they're gonna do something bad, right? And in that stadium of 200,000 people, you are the one and only security guard. And it's your job to find that one person and protect everybody else, right? And the reason I give you those numbers is because when you look at the mucosal layers inside the body, the areas where microbes and your immune system engage and, and where a lot of this defense happens, there's a 200,000 to one ratio of microbes to immune cells surveying the area, right? For every one immune cell that's surveying and protecting an area, that immune cell is dealing with at least 200,000 microbes, right? So it's a 200,000 to one ratio. So now you're the lone security guard, which is the immune cell in the sea, in the stadium of 200,000 uh, people, 199,999 of them are perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. One of them, is a problem and all of them look very similar, right? Mm -hmm. How do you do it? It would be absolutely impossible. The only way to do it Mm -hmm. is if the other 199,999 people were on your side, they all had walkie talkies wired into you. Mm -hmm. And if they, any of them saw something suspicious, they would immediately call you and tell you where it is, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the only way it's a neighborhood watch mentality. Right. And that's exactly the relationship between the microbiome and the immune system, because there are far more microbes in your system than there are immune cells. The immune system actually counts on the microbes as the eyes and ears to the immune system than than themselves, because the immune system cannot physically survey the entire surface area and review every single microbe that's in the system to try to figure out if it's friend or foe. Mm-hmm. So the immune system counts on the microbiome to be the, the eyes on 
whether or not a new invading species is coming in to cause problems for the host. So when you first get infected by something, Mm -hmm. when something enters your body for the first time, and that's a thing that's going to perhaps cause you illness and it'll start infecting cells in a given area, the first things to notice the presence of that, let's say a virus, are the microbes in that region. And the microbes in that region, as soon as they notice a disruption, they'll start shooting off inflammatory flares to try to attract the immune system to that area, right? Mm. That's how they call the immune system. That's the fire alarm that they send off. They said they they increase IL-6, they increase IL-1, they increase TNF or interferon. These are the cytokines that they use or the signals that they use to try to recruit the immune system to your area, right? Mm -hmm. So they are acting as the eyes and ears, and they're always going to be the ones that see the disruption first whether it's from an invading bacteria, virus, whatever it may be. Now, here's where the system goes awry in a couple of different ways, right? Number one, let's say you have more opportunistic or pathogenic organisms in a given area, right? Those organisms, because they're opportunistic and pathogenic, they actually don't want to work with your immune system because your immune system may notice that they are a problem too, right? So the, the same idea here around the neighborhood watch is that if there's one house in the neighborhood watch that is that has people that are doing pretty illegal things, right? And they notice some suspicious activity out in front of the house, they're not gonna pick up the phone and call the police because they don't want the police attention in that area. They're gonna let that, whatever that suspicious thing in front of their house go by, right? That's the same as those opportunistic microbes. They're not inclined to recruit the immune system when they see a new invading pathogen coming in. In fact, they like that. They like the new invading pathogen to come in because that then gives them the opportunity to proliferate themselves while the immune system is distracted with something else, right? Mm. So that's one place where the whole immune response gets derailed is when you have the wrong types of microbes or microbes are too much of the wrong types. Here's the other way that it gets that it gets derailed. Imagine your gut is unhealthy and you have leaky gut because of it, right? Leaky gut becomes the biggest source of chronic inflammation in the body. Inflammation is exactly the signal that the microbes use to try to recruit your immune system to a site of action. So now if you have inflammation throughout your body because of leaky gut, then when you have an infection in a given area, it becomes very hard for your micro, for your immune system to pick up that signal because that same signal is present all over the body, ah. right? That's yep. what I call the issue of lost signaling, right? So the analogy for that, because I know it can be a little esoteric for people to understand, but imagine you had a neighborhood with 500 homes, right? And one of those homes has a small fire that's starting in the kitchen. And that home has a fire alarm that, that picks up the fire and starts going off. Now, it's very easy for the uh, firefighters to hear the alarm, know exactly where it's ringing, and make a beeline for that house and put it out. Imagine that same scenario where all 400 other homes also have fire alarms going off, even though they're not on fire, right? Yeah, yeah. The, fire, the, the uh, firefighters are going to be thoroughly confused to figure out which house is actually the one they need to go to. And then by the time they actually see the smoke and see that house burning and then finally can identify the damage to go there, the damage has gone on for a very long time, right? And, and, and maybe it's too late at that point even 
So that's the analogy there. So if your gut is dysfunctional, it's a double whammy on the immune system because number one, if you have too many pathogenic or opportunistic organisms, you don't have the type of microbiome that works with your immune system to recruit it to the site of action where it needs to be. Number two, a dysfunctional microbiome also leads to leaky gut, which leads to this chronic inflammation throughout the body that creates a, uh, a saturation of signals where even if you have a functioning microbiome trying to signal your immune system in one area, the immune system gets confused because this signals all over the body. So it's slow to respond, right? And we saw evidence of both of this in the whole COVID pandemic thing. Yeah. You know, there's a reason why people who were overweight, people who are diabetic, people who are at heart disease, all of those comorbidities or pre-existing conditions were, were creating significant risk of a very poor outcome in these individuals, right? People who are diabetic were 10 times more likely to die from it than people who worked, who are the same age, right? Why the tenfold increase in death? Well, that's because diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, all of these comorbidities, all of these pre-existing conditions are conditions of chronic low-grade inflammation. So these individuals had lots of inflammation in their system. So then here comes in a virus, number one, that feeds off of inflammation because it bound to that ACE2 receptor, which is a receptor that's expressed during inflammatory damage. So number one, it had lots of targets. Number two, it was given more time to replicate and create more damage before the immune system ever noticed it was even there, right? That's why these individuals would go eight, 10, 12 days with no symptoms, yes. right? Remember being asymptomatic, there was like 14 day incubation periods where you could go 14 days with having zero symptoms and then boom, all of a sudden you're on like death's doorstep, right? It's like bad fever, respiratory distress, you got to run, rush to the hospital and all that. It's for that reason, you know, and um, it's, it's when you, you can't, overstate the connection between the microbiome and the immune system. Oh, I mean, that's the best analogy. I'm going to start using that with my patients, especially when you yeah. say that the damage has already been done. And I think it's, you exactly. know, you can just speak for, you know, coronavirus or COVID and like, you know, infections like parasites or, you know, everything, Lyme disease yeah. or anything. Now, one of the things I would like to touch on, I know many people out there when they have the gut issues, they have digestive issues. A lot of them out there are asking because they say it's a gut brain connection. Mm -hmm. uh, people have mental fog and brain fog and actually have memory issues. Can you touch a bit about that, about how important it is for the spores and for the stomach to get better at the digestion for the brain? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and there's, there's one really great statistic around that where on IBS patients, right? So when you look at uh, a cohort of IBS people, somewhere mm -hmm. around 52% of IBS people have diagnosed anxiety disorder, mm -hmm. right? Compare that to the same age group who don't have IBS, it's less than 19%, right? So if you have IBS, you're two and a half times more likely to have anxiety, right? So it goes hand in hand. And, and there's a number of those kind of statistics that relate gut issues to cognitive brain issues as well. And there's a, there's a couple of key reasons here. One is because when your gut is leaky, a leaky gut allows the migration through of something called endotoxins. These are toxins that are produced by the microbiome that are supposed to stay in the lumen of the intestines, in the tube part of the intestines. But if your gut is leaky, it's going to leak through into your circulation. One particular to uh, toxin is called lipopolysaccharide or LPS. 
-hmm. The problem with LPS is that when it's elevated, it can go up to the brain and it can bind to serotonin receptors. So it can interfere with serotonin binding. It can bind to dopamine receptors. So it interferes with dopamine binding. So now you get less functionality out of both serotonin, your happy hormone and dopamine, the hormone that, that triggers the reward centers of the brain that makes you feel good about things that excite you and makes you feel good about choices that you make. And then the third part is it can also drive significant inflammation in the brain, right? So just that alone drives a significant risk for anxiety, depression, and mood disorders when your gut is dysfunctional. Uh, there was a, a nine-year uh, study out of the Netherlands looking at anxiety and depression and they were looking at the connection to the gut microbiome and, and dysfunctions in the gut microbiome, what they found was that they could predict the presence and the severity of anxiety and depression in individuals by just looking at how leaky their gut was and how much endotoxin they had in their blood, right? They could absolutely predict the severity and the presence of anxiety and depression in these individuals. And they followed these individuals for nine years and it stayed true for nine years with the individuals that remained with leakiness in the gut and remained with high levels of this endotoxin leaking through on a daily basis. They always had not only the presence of anxiety and depression, but the level of endotoxins dictated the severity of, of anxiety and depression, right? So you so, can go ahead. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah, so your gut is driving that, right? Mm -hmm. And, and when we find that there's that, there's that's the science behind like the LPS binding to these uh -huh. receptor sites, is that like, I get a good explanation why you'll see like even truly like kids in grade schools now and kids are young and people having behavioral issues and behavioral problems because, yeah. you know, the food sources cause a lot of the leaky gut issues and disrupt that. That would be one explanation for that too. Cause they're not being fed any probiotics or anything good uh, for their. That's digestion. exactly right. Yeah. I mean, kids are born with a gut that's leaky to begin with. Right. And if and if the if the microbiome doesn't develop properly early on, then the gut will remain leaky, uh, and then there's there's still time to re revamp the microbiome. But then kids are exposed to a thousand and one things that hurt their microbiome constantly, right? Mm -hmm. Beyond the poor food that kid, most kids eat to to begin with, just all the chemistries and the antibiotics and all the things that they're exposed to. So ultimately, what you do see then in, in behavioral disorders. Is, uh, is really a, uh, an anxiety or panic response in a kid, right? Because when, it, when an adult feels anxiety or adult feels panic, they know what it is, right? And, and, and they modulate how they respond. Some people just kind of go back in, right? They close the door, they shut the curtains, they need to be by themselves. Some people try to overcome that by self-medicating, right? Whether it's through drinking or recreational drugs or other things, when it comes to kids, when they feel anxiety, when they feel panic disorders, they have outbursts, they have tantrums, right? And these are things that we say, oh, they have behavioral issues. It's actually their biology driving those conditions, right? And these are the same kids that will continue to have anxiety and depression and crazy ideations and all that throughout their lives, right? Um, until the, the gut is corrected. So that's one way in which the gut can drive dysfunction in the brain. It's through the leakiness the presence of endotoxins interfering with serotonin, dopamine, and also driving inflammation in the brain. The second part of it is through a dysfunctional stress response, right? Mm -hmm. So we all experience external stressors. There's no way of getting away from that, right? Uh, that's just life in the modern world, whether it's a 
small stressor like a tweet or comment somebody made on social media that pisses you off or a big stressor like, you know, dysfunctional relationship, whether it's a, you know, platonic or non-platonic relationship, but there's nonetheless stressors all around. When we experience an, uh, an external stressor, the first part of the brain that tries to deal with that stress is the hypothalamus, right? And it's, and it gets triggered and then it starts releasing hormones to trigger the pituitary gland, which then the pituitary gland releases a hormone to trigger the adrenal glands. And then the adrenal glands release cortisol. Uh, and the whole point of that hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis is to activate the flight or fight response, right? And flight or fight response is a very important ancient ancient coding into us, that's what's allowed us as a species to survive. If we didn't have fight or flight response, we would do some really dumb stuff, right? Like not run away from predators or, you know, <laughs> not uh, recognize and understand dangers that may kill us. The flight or fight response absolutely has saved us as a species. The thing is, it's triggered by almost any external stressor, right? The biology of it. So now what's, what's happening when you experience this external stressor your flight or fight response gets kicked up by the HPA activation. Cortisol levels start going up. And then as cortisol levels are going up, the other end of the HPA activation is the activation of the sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And then the sympathetic nervous system starts trying to do a couple of things. One, sympathetic nervous system is trying to get blood to your brain, get blood to your heart and to your muscles because it's trying to prepare you to be able to fight or run or flee, right, from the situation. The way it does that is it uses the immune system. So the sympathetic nervous system starts releasing things called catecholamines in the brain, in the, in the, in the muscle tissue that create inflammation. And that inflammation recruits the immune cells, right? Remember, even from the, from the previous thing we said, where the microbes recruit immune cells through inflammation, so can your own body try to recruit immune cells through inflammation. So that recruits immune cells, but when the immune cells get there, they release more sets of inflammatory cytokines because more inflammation leads to more blood being rushed to that area. That's how it gets perfusion into the brain into the, the, into the uh, heart and other areas. So when you're experiencing an external stressor and you're starting to get this flight of fight uh, activation, what's really happening is your sympathetic nervous system is on, which means it's creating inflammation in your brain, in your heart, in your muscles. And then the other part of it is cortisol keeps going up. Now, the reason why cortisol is going up is because cortisol is also helping recruit uh, inflammatory cytokines, but then one of its jobs is cortisol gets dumped into the gut. And when it's in the gut, there are microbes that actually metabolize cortisol and the byproducts of that metabolization go to the kidneys and it causes the kidneys to open sodium potassium pumps. The reason why this kidneys open sodium potassium pumps is because it's trying to change the osmolarity in the blood to recruit more water into the blood so that you can increase blood pressure because that also helps with perfusion, right? So that's one of the reasons why stress over time creates high blood pressure in individuals. But when you're trying to fight or flee, you want more blood to your brain, you want more blood to your heart, you want more blood to your muscles. One of the ways of rushing blood to all these areas is to increase pressure, right? So now cortisol is helping increase pressure 
and, and activating inflammatory cytokines. And then your sympathetic nervous system is activating uh, inflammatory cytokines, trying to increase vasodilation, acuteness, and so on. The problem with all of this is that cortisol, once it enters into the gut, has to start becoming a feedback loop to stop the system. Because you can very quickly imagine that it's not good to be in this state all yes. day long, right? It's, it's not great to be in a state where your brain is inflamed, your heart's inflamed, your, uh, your muscles are inflamed, your blood pressure is high, right? That's not a good state to be in all day long, but it's, it may be important for a moment to survive. So this has to be a way of turning all this off. Cortisol is the off switch, right? So what's supposed to happen is cortisol is dumped in the gut. Part of it gets metabolized. The other part of it starts getting bound by something called glucocorticoid receptors. These receptors, as it binds more and more and more in cortisol, once there's a saturation effect, these receptors send a negative feedback signal to the sympathetic nervous system to bring it all back down and start activating the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest, digest, and, and repair part of the system, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the very important role of cortisol. Now, here's the big problem. If you have a dysfunctional gut microbiome, if you don't have the right type of gut microbiome, when cortisol gets dumped into the gut to get metabolized and start binding glucocorticoid receptors, it actually causes your gut to become severely leaky at that moment, mm. right? which then, as we said before, increases the migration of toxins into the system, which increases inflammatory responses. And in one, one inflammatory cytokine in particular called IL-6 is a big problem in this because IL-6 has the ability to go to the brain and reactivate the HPA axis again, putting you through the same exact cycle over and over again, even though the stressor is gone, right? So this means that a single stressor in the morning can reactivate your HPA access over and over and over again throughout the day, making it impossible to come down from that activated flight of fight type of state. That's why people are in these chronic anxiety states throughout the day. They can't go up and come down. It's perfectly fine to experience some degree of anxiety if something is scary right? Yes. You're supposed to experience it. You're, you respond in whatever you, way you need to respond. And your anxiousness and cortisol and stress goes up, but then it's supposed to come back down to get you back to your basic level. The big problem in the modern days, because our gut's messed up, we can't come back down from it. Does that make sense? That totally. I, I, for everybody out there listening, remember, you can rewind this and listen to this, Ken, because I'm going to be listening to this over and over again, uh, Karan, because on a side note, I think this is cool because like in Chinese medicine, when you talked about the sodium potassium pumps, the infusion mm -hmm. to allow water to come in and make blood pressure higher, they always say that one of the biggest signs of stress and fear and fatigue is kidney fatigue. And that's a big yeah. explanation of my opinion because the kidneys are continuously working all the time. Totally. Man, this, yeah. is, this is really mind-blowing. Yeah. Same thing Man. with adrenal fatigue, right? So if you think about what the poor adrenal glands have to do, because remember when cortisol dumps into your gut and makes your gut leaky, mm -hmm. right? That inflammation goes up, it re-triggers the HPA axis again, which means it's re-triggering the hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenal glands. Mm -hmm. and, and then what does that do? That makes you release more cortisol, which makes your gut even more leaky, which means more inflammation, which means reactivation of the HPA axis again, right? So it keeps going. It keeps spiraling. So this is why people end up in adrenal fatigue, right? Their adrenals are actually designed 
to respond in short bursts throughout the day here and there as needed. Their adrenals aren't designed to be a gland that's continuously producing hormones, right? But in the modern day, because our gut's so messed up, we have this downward spiral. But if you have a healthy gut, the whole system gets arrested in the gut. When cortisol gets dumped into the gut, a healthy gut microbiome, especially one that contains compounds like peptidoglycan, will actually see that, oh my God, cortisol levels are up. We're starting to get higher levels in the gut. This means that we need to, uh, to slow down the system and start bringing down the, par- the sympathetic and activating the parasympathetic. And so there are microbes in the gut that recognize this. And number one, they prevent cortisol from making your gut leaky. So you don't have that reactivation. And then they also can turn on neurotransmitters that go right to the brain to start to shift your brainwave away from that flight or fight, you know, frantic response towards a more meditative state, which is a more calm and relaxed state, right? So microbes are the checkpoint for this. And if you don't have microbes, you're going to suffer through this continuous reactivation of the stress response, which means that the world becomes more and more and more um, stress and anxiety inducing for you. So remember the endotoxins binding serotonin, dopamine receptors, and creating inflammation in the brain, and then uh, a messed up gut allowing reactivation of the stress response from a single stressor, those two combined together becomes really horrific for the brain over time. This has been amazing, Karan. I'm telling you, this is like people out there, this is like information in a good way overload. And I'm telling everybody, remember to re-listen to it. So we know that the microbiome, the biome can definitely help every condition or all the symptoms we just talked about. Yeah. And we really want to know like how people from this information, they're going to want to reach out. They want to know more about this. How can they get more information from you? Where can they reach you or, or get in contact? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm always happy to try to engage with people on social media. I, I try to do that as much as I can. Uh, my handle on Instagram is Kieran Biome. So K-I-R-A-N-B-I-O-M-E. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can put my name, Kieran Krishnan on Facebook. You'll find me as well. Um, and then, and I post a lot of my talks and lectures and things that I do, um, that are either upcoming or have been done in the past on, on my social media. They can also, uh, look at, uh, microbiomelabs.com, which is of course the company I co-founded to, to, to build microbiome therapeutic products. Um, there's lots of resources on there as well, but yeah, reach out, you know, I'm always happy to try to point people in the right direction. Uh, I'm not a practitioner. I don't see patients, but I'm always happy to point people towards the right signs to think about, you know, their health and wellness. Well, I'm telling you what, we are very pleasure. I mean, very grateful. And it was a truly a pleasure to talk to you about this because it answers so many questions in my book. I know the people out there listening appreciate this. Guys, please check him out. Check out Microbiome Labs. And um, I want, man, in the future, I'd love to have you back on the, the podcast at some point. And uh, this has just yeah. been so such good information, especially all those who suffer from these type of conditions and inflammation. So again, Karan, thank you so much for joining us. And Dr. Axon is best. And we thank you so much from here from the Health Institute. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.